From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Welcome to Bridging Philly. I'm Sharday Howard. So many things in history got imported to America and hip hop got exported from America. We celebrate 50 years of hip hop as a cultural movement that's here to stay. What started as an underground 70s house party has taken over the mainstream, inspiring a multitude of art forms, including DJing, MCing, rapping, breaking, and street art. Its beginnings reflecting the lives of people of color in America, but can now be found in international music, fashion, language, dance, and scholarship. There's so much greatness, so many divergent voices, and I think there's room for all of them. We talk to iconic DJs and an MC turned civil rights attorney and professor about hip-hop's cultural evolution. All that's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. So we are in the midst of a summer of celebration, 50 years of hip-hop. It's incredible. I remember the birth of hip-hop. I mean, I'm 53. I mean, you know, I remember when it was first getting going. I'll put it that way. And it was all a dream, but not really because the dream became a reality. Timothy Welbeck, director of the Center for Anti-Racism at Temple University, not only a professor and a lawyer, but also an MC. This is true. This is true. Thanks again for having me. Sure. When did you start rapping, so to speak, and get into hip hop? So I'm somewhat of a late bloomer when it comes to hip hop. My parents' introduction to hip hop um, culture and rap music was with Two Live Crew around the time that their Nasty As I Want to Be album was in federal court for Mm. the obscenity, um, I guess, case. And my mom asked a co-worker, was the music that bad? And to show you how long ago this was, the co-worker brought a cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And my mom was to it the next day on her lunch break. And she came home and she said, Emmanuel, that's my father. She said, if this is what rap music is, Timothy and Catherine, that's my younger sister. They can't listen to this. And so for much of my formative years, I was listening to my parents' music, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Fela Kuti, mm-hmm. Michael Jackson, things like that. And then when I got into middle school, my parents gave me a little autonomy. And my cousin came to visit over the summer and she found a hip hop station. And I heard it for the first time, whatever was current at the time. And it was like something out of a movie. I was entranced literally from the first time I heard it. And so that was my first active memory of listening to rap music attentively, being exposed to hip hop culture. And then about a year and a half, two years later, I started rapping myself and just kind of never stopped after that. Mm -hmm. Were you in school making the beats on the (laughs) desk? Because we were all making beats on desks in between when waiting for the teachers to come in and everybody would just start to just make up raps and things of that nature. It was just so much fun when it first started to take off. So I struggled with beating on the table. I wasn't as coordinated (laughs) (laughs) as some of my friends. And so my friends would so we used to have like little ciphers in high school. And so we would, you know, very stereotypical like in the graded video, people beating on um, desks and things mm-hmm. like that. And then um, a few people will take turns rapping. And um, that's really what got me, I guess, to begin rapping in public. Because before that, I was mainly just writing in my room and things like that at home. Mm-hmm. So for you, uh, being an MC, being a rapper, it's a form of expression. It's a form of poetic expression, right? Absolutely. So... I like to say that hip hop is an African derived aesthetic and it participates in a continuum of 
various forms of African creative expression. And so it's just one of the latest iterations of that. And so we're taking poetic elements, but we're also taking traditional West African forms of music making and bringing them together. And that's one of the things that makes it so powerful. So you've got poetic device, you've got these ancient cultural traditions, and they're coming together dynamically. One thing I think, um, Timothy Welbeck, is that there is a difference between hip hop and rap. What we're hearing (laughs) now is rap, and I'm going to use that loosely because to me, it's not hip hop. Tell me your feelings on the evolution of hip hop and rap. And it seems like we've come away from the messages and things that we used to rap about and how people flowed in the different way that people presented their poetry to now I don't even really understand some of the, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't really understand what they're I, saying. They call it mumble rap and, and then there, there's noises. And I'm like, what is that? What is that? <laughs> what do you think about it? So there's much to be said about it. One of my favorite quotes is what KRS once said. He said, hip-hop is who you are, rap is what you do. Mm. And I think that's such a great encapsulation of the distinct nature between the culture and one of its components. And that component, rap music, has been commodified. Ever since the late 80s into the early 90s, corporations saw that hip-hop was not just going away, but that you could make money off of it. Mm -hmm. And so over time, as hip-hop grew in popularity and visibility, people started finding ways to commodify hip-hop the way everything else is commodified in America. And so the mainstream iteration of the culture in many ways is unrecognizable from the culture at its heart. And it's taken on some of our worst instincts and impulses and things like that. And what I say is that every generation has had their mindless exuberance. Mine did, my parents' generation did, but there was a counterbalance to it. Mm -hmm. So if I wanted to listen to something that was profane, I still had things to counterbalance against it. Um, One of the examples that I gave my class is that, for example, when I was in high school, the Black Star album, Equimini, Jay-Z's Volume 2, DMX's It's Dark Out and Hell is Hot, Masterpiece, Mm -hmm. The Last Dawn, and Big Pun's Capital Punishment all came out on the same day. And so all those albums came out the same day in 1998. So so you could go to the store because we are old. So you could go to a store and you could take your picks. If you want to un and on and on, you got Master P. If you wanted uh, emerging hip hop out of New York, you had um, Black Star. If you wanted um, the pinnacle of of what the mainstream was at the time, you could get Jay-Z. If you wanted something in between, you still had Tribe, you had DMX, you had Pun. And so I say that to say we had balance. The Miseducation came out that year, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Incredible album, of course. One of the greatest albums of all time. And so I'm partial. Lauren is like my favorite artist ever. But (laughs) (laughs) But I say that to say you're right, though. I'm deeply disappointed at times in a way that mainstream rap music embraces so many forms of misogyny, misogyny noir, toxic masculinity, violence, substance abuse. So many of our worst instincts are glorified and amplified, whereas in, in the past, we were talking about how our experiences with these things could potentially play out. And at times, we're offering cautionary tales and just mm-hmm. presenting things as they were. And I think we've lost a lot of that, at least at the mainstream level. Yeah. Well, the evolution continues, but I can't let you go without asking you the GOAT, the top three GOATs. Let me have them and see if they align with mine. Wow. (laughs) I'll give you mine. I'll give you mine. Rakim is first. Mm -hmm. KRS-One. And because I'm a girl, LL Cool J. (laughs) Those are my top three. I'm not mad at that. Oh, good. Um, What I generally tell people is my list of greatest of all time and my favorites are different. 
So like if you're asking who the greatest of all time is, I'm usually saying Jay-Z, Tupac, Nas, Big. And recently, I think Kendrick has slipped into the fifth spot for me. And then um, from there, I started to consider people like um, Kim, Kane, Lauren, Andre, um, things like that. But in terms of all time greatness, I'm usually starting with some configuration of those people um, just for varying degrees. I don't think anyone's had a career that's transcended the culture in a way that Jay-Z has. He's got at least three classic albums. I don't think anybody has been more influential than Pac was. He did more in five years than I think anybody has. He was only a public figure for about five years. I think Nas and Big, while at times have some problematic things in their content, represent just the pinnacle of lyricism at times. Mm -hmm. I think Kendrick is the defining voice of his generation. I think that he has at least two to three classic albums. Um, By my estimation, Lauren is one of the greatest artists to ever record music. Andre, I think, is one of the culture's most brilliant voices. Black Thought, I think, is the most talented. Um, So, And then from there, I think you have to start thinking about people like Kim, Rakim and Kane, who changed the way elite rappers rap. Um, I think you got to look at people like uh, LL Cool J, who was um, hip hop's first real superstar. So it's hard because there's so many people like you've got 50 years and then we still even haven't talked about like Queen Latifah and Salt and Pepper and things like that. And so the beauty of the culture is that there's so much greatness, so many divergent voices. And I think there's room for all of them. Timothy Welbeck, I'm not mad at that. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. In August of 1973, soul, rhymes, rhythm, funk music were all being deconstructed and then reconstructed into a phenomenon with the range that crossed oceans and time. The tide of hip hop first swept across the East Coast like a tidal wave from New York City's Mars Heights to Philly block parties and never stopped. Hip hop can be anything that you juxtapose one thing over another. The beauty of it is so many people, all they had was records. All they had was a drum machine, you know, turntables, speakers, and a microphone. And and we made art out of that. We celebrate 50 years of hip hop with a couple of Philly's most expansive DJs to talk about Philly's contribution. While, of course, having them DJ just a little for the ride. DJ Cash Money and DJ Duji M. Machinda, who says hip-hop to Philly just came naturally. We got soul, you know, we're coming from the tradition of like the gambling huffs and um, the Philly sound. It's just in us to do something funky and, and new. And Philly made some big moves with big names. People like Will Smith, people like Steady B, Cool C. You got a tough crew. All types of folks just, you know, contributed To hip-hop, when it was still in the 80s and 90s, I remember sitting in, like, 1984 listening to Lady B on Power 99, um, Sundays at 4 o'clock, and that was something I would look forward to. Um, And that was some of my first exposure to, like, you know, rap on the airwaves and stuff. So describe what rap was and why it was different, what Philly brought to the table. I guess we just do things our way. We got soul and um, the Philly sound. So that um, whatever came next, being the children of the people making Philadelphia soul music, 
There were a lot of innovators, people like Jazzy Jeff, Lady B, Bahamadia, the, the block parties, the turntablism, MCing. And it, it speaks to the evolution of what it was, what it could have been, and then what it is now. And who knows what the future of it will be. You can say it went from being an underground local phenomenon to being a mainstream money earner to being a global just maelstrom you know when hip-hop kind of took the opposite of um you know circumnavigating the globe where as an american art form it got so many things in history got imported to america and hip-hop is a cultural phenomenon that got exported from america and it's gone everywhere france senegal the korean b-boy team is ridiculous <laughs> china right. everywhere so like each place that hip-hop has landed throughout the world certain cultures stuck to a certain expression of it and you can see when it comes back it's different but the spirit is still there Boom. i was born in 1975 so i'm just a little bit younger than hip-hop in my own experience but like even coming of age in the 90s with people like The Roots and again, Bahamadia and the Manny Call Lux and the Fat Cat Click and Ram Squad and Task Force. This is just people that I remember listening to on um, Power 99 with MC Rand, Kobe Cole, Radioactive late at night. And it was just so engaging. You know what I mean? There was the ones without that let the will be their way. They found an instrument in their environment. Well, for some people, spraying on a wall is vandalism. And for other people, spraying on a wall is an expression of art. And it all depends on, I guess, if it's your wall and what you bring as far as your experience when perceiving the artwork. Because when you have people who have so little private space, they're going to define themselves in the public. Whether it's like, you mean, rapping on a trolley, banging on a lunch table, you know, and rapping along. You know, I was teaching a class a while ago that said, like, hip-hop is folk music. And, you know, and just because it's black folks and brown folks music don't mean it's not folk, it's not culture, it's not art. So let's talk about Philly culture and how it's really expressed in hip-hop. What makes it unique? Um, Stream of consciousness. <laughs> So Damn Tough is the first thing that came to mind. And that's um, like, whenever I play that Tough Crew song at a jam, folks go crazy for it. And um, you got the scratch intro, you got the hard um, rap, and you got the rhythm. And it's just people feel that and they catch it and the energy is, is infectious and undeniable. So let's deconstruct hip hop. What is it? What are the three main elements of hip hop? Um... People say MCN, breaking, DJing. People also add uh, graffiti to that as well. It's a collage of what the city is and what the city means. I have to agree with that. Who are some people doing that right now that were doing it before that continue to do it today? Uh, Meek Mills is doing big things. Black Thought, Cash Money. Speaking of DJ Cash Money, he shared the secret is in the sauce. Then everyone's got their own flavor in Philly. Cats with their arms folded up. That's like, check me out. You know, I have something to say. That's right. That's the Philly mentality. The sky is the limit. You know, for me, it's all about innovation and being creative. You know, I never like to 
sound like anybody. Like it's okay to learn from somebody, but it's take that, add your your thing to it, and create your lane. Right, make it yours. You know, so old uh, Chinese proverb says that you can't make your own footsteps if you're standing in somebody else's shoes. So Philly is able to fill a niche, and no one else can step in. Talk about footsteps. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things I pride myself on is creating my own footsteps. You know, I mean. It's cool for everybody else to follow them, but not me. Right. You got to recreate each time. Not all the time. That's what innovation is about. So let's talk innovation. How would you even describe your sound? What's your what's your thing? Um, I could take I make turntables into an instrument, you know, um, just like a guitar player would play, you know, guitar or, or drummers and stuff like that. My uh musical instrument of choice is my turntables i speak with my hands so basically i can take two of the same records and make a remix right in front of your face like turn it into something completely different than what it originally sounded like do you go in with a plan or does it happen spontaneously i'm a spontaneous guy to be honest with you a lot of my best work happens from i don't want to say a mistake but something I wasn't thinking about, and I'll look at the tape or listen to the tape, and it's like, oh, man, I can create something from that. Perfectly imperfect. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been in this game, this music game, for over 35 years. And sometimes you got to look back to look forward. So when people think about you, they think about the historical uh, value of you. The thing with me is I don't like to stay in the past, but you have to be reminded of where you came from so you can go forward you know that's the reason why I, I try to stay relevant you know not just staying in the past you know it kind of helps that nobody can compete yeah true <laughs> and of course it wouldn't be hip-hop without shout outs so we got north philly south philly and west philly summer summer summertime Summertime. Summertime. <laughs> Happy birthday, hip hop. Happy birthday, hip hop. Happy birthday, hip hop. <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday, hip hop. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Rising Sun The Exhibit is a collaboration between two Philly institutions, the African American Museum and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, asking the question, is the sun rising or setting on democracy in America? And 20 artists respond from the perspective of the African diaspora, musing through the lens of the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. I sat down with Nina Ball, the programming director at AAMP, and a couple of the curators of the exhibit to get a little bit deeper into the inspiration behind the exhibit. And honestly, I was blown away. So here we go. This particular exhibit, it's special. It Why is it special to you? It, it's special to me because it speaks about something that we talk about in the peripheral all the time, but we never go in depth about democracy, citizenship, place and belonging, especially from the black perspective, is a very exciting prospect, especially to program too. What was one of your favorite things to address and how you expressed it? There are so many different layers through media, through physical, through mental, emotional. I have a background in film, so I'm 
particularly drawn to the pieces that are moving images. There's Mark Thomas Gibson's uh, Klansman's Grave. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. So prepare to be emotional. Prepare to be emotional. Prepare to respect the space the minute you walk into it, to be engaged and to really plan a couple of hours to take your time with every layer and every element of this exhibition. It has been years in the making. It was delayed by the pandemic and now it's finally seeing the light of day. So we're just one half. Pafa is the other half, but both spaces are worth spending plenty of time in. Then I spoke with Morgan Lloyd, who's the program coordinator at the museum, and she gave us a little greater insight into how this partnership really works for this exhibit. This exhibition is called Rising Sun, Artists in an Uncertain America. It is an exciting event, not only for our institution, but also for the Pennsylvania Academy for Fine Arts. We are two institutions working on one exhibition. It's not part one and part two, but two halves of telling a whole story. They were posing this question rooted in a chair, ironically, at Independence Hall. It has a half sun on it. And Benjamin Franklin would often ponder alongside the founding fathers, is the half sun on this chair the rising or the setting sun on the experiment of the American democracy? Frankly, rising sun is akin to a lot of people, especially those of Afro descent in America, because rising sun is applicable to the Black national anthem. So what if predominantly marginalized voices answer this question. So one, it's exciting because here at the African-American Museum, we're able to uplift a bunch of diasporic Black voices in a myriad of ways and expressions. Um, They're multifaceted artists. We have filmmakers. We have all kinds of painters. We have wall installations. You're going to hear perspectives from artists who aren't even from the mainland. We have perspectives of those from the Caribbean who are analyzing perspectives from Guam. So it's holistic. Holistic. Absolutely holistic. And simultaneously, once you walk through Chinatown, which more than likely will be activated during this exhibition as part of our storytelling mechanism, you're going to go to the Pennsylvania Academy for Fine Arts, which is regarded as one of our oldest arts institutions in our nation. Our museum being the first African-American institution to be supported by our local municipality, as well as the Smithsonian, and then PAFA being the oldest arts institution. And if you're familiar with that space, uh, historically it is regarded for holding a lot of images of those founding fathers. And for the first time in history, they went down. And they're now installing exclusively Black, Brown, Indigenous, Asian, and women voices. And I think one of the things that excites me the most in, say, Papa's experience as well is some of their artists are Black and or Asian and. And George Washington is down and now we have a person who identifies as being of Indigenous descent. And the only way to speak the name of the work is to speak in his language. Dispelling myths yes. about what boxes we're in. There are no boxes. Precisely. Especially at our museum, we're calling upon the American experience in the contemporary, as well as being inspired by those who defined what Black American experience was through the lens of the past. Tradition. Yes. Ancestry. We're thinking of revolution. We're thinking of archival images from all across the diaspora. There's ancestors here, and they're going to also inspire our artists. You're calling on the ancestors, but you're also calling on the community. Exactly. I hope that people see themselves in all of these works. And even if you don't identify with all of the folks that are going up on the walls, I hope that you get to meet a variety of voices that can also inspire you and help you also see what being an American means to you. 
And now on to Dejay Duckett. She's one of the main curators of this exhibit, and she gives a really detailed play-by-play -play of one of the most impactful pieces in this exhibit. It starts out with a dark room, and there's a flower and a grave. Now, what are we looking at? So Mark Thomas Gibson's piece, it's called Their Failure is Our Reward. And, you know, when you first walk into this very dimly lit room with what looks like a, a grave, you know, it can be pretty ominous. But, you know, as we think about, you know, whether the sun is rising or setting on this democracy, um, that's the question that the artists were, were given to ponder. Um, and also think about the Black National Anthem and if facing the rising sun of a new day begun, if that still is relevant, if we can still feel hopeful. He's taken this piece and it's activated four times a day and the lights will come up in this room. It will directly light this animatronic daisy. It's a large flower that's coming out of the Klansman's grave. So the light will come to the flower. The flower, its large, you know, beautiful petaled head will lift up and survey the audience. And then you'll hear the battle hymn from Robert E. Lee is going to start to play very loudly. And then the flower is going to start to sway and move and literally dance on the grave of the Klansman. You know, what beauty can sprout from the end of white supremacy. In the end, it's a very optimistic piece. And it's all of us, you know, we have to collectively dig this grave for all of the hate and the white supremacy and all the poison that that creates and has created in this country. It speaks to the wound and the healing. To the wound and the healing, 100%. So the piece is actually really hopeful about what can come from if we do the work the darkest period, can we dig ourselves out? If we can dig ourselves out and bury all this hate from the past. And leave something for our posterity. And leave some beauty, beauty for ashes. Rising Sun Artist in an Uncertain America runs now through October 8th. You can get your tickets online. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Organ Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on X at Bridging Philly, at Shara Day, and at Raquel on Air. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Raquel Williams and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Shara Day Howard. Be well. Be well.